Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Of, uh, a couple of big headlines this morning that we are not going to spend um, much time on, but that I think you need to be aware of, and we will circle back around to. Conservative members of the United Methodist Church have detailed a breakaway plan. Uh, that's the way it's being described, or that's the headline anyway. Conservative leaders from the United Methodist Church, known as the UMC, it's the second largest Protestant denomination in the country. Uh, On Monday, a group of conservatives within the UMC released a logo, website, and mission for the proposed new denomination, which will be known as Global Methodist Church. Uh, And this came just days after the the United Methodist Church as a denomination delayed this year's general conference until August of 2022, they say due to the pandemic, but um, everyone, you know, would recognize that uh, the schism is coming in the UMC related to LGBTQ concerns. Um, so that is going on, and we will um, bring you more on that. You know, we'll have a guest from from the conservative members of that coalition um, who are uh, who are really leading <clears throat> that that change. The other big news is not going to be news anywhere except at the LaBerge household. And that is the that there are now, we are now rich in dogs. Uh, we are rich in dogs at the LaBerge household. Uh, seven puppies arrived last night. And so I know that those of you who have had puppies at your house before are now saying um, Carmen did not need to stay up most of the night and worry over that first time dog mom and her seven puppies, but uh, suffice it to say, I didn't get much sleep. And um, at 3 a.m., when the strange interloping dog came into the yard and created such havoc, we then, of course, had to get up and fish her and her babies while she was already out trying to defend them. Uh, we had to fish them out from underneath this building, my radio shack, uh, and um, and then, you know, make take them into the garage and get them all squared away. So, uh, yeah, there you go. That's the big headlines at the LaBerge household. We are rich in dogs. Three things to uh, encourage you in today. Let's um, let's join the kindness challenge if you haven't done so already. These are our 31 days of kindness. Let's get involved in that. Um, and uh, join us in our Mark reading plan during the month of March. We're reading the Gospel of Mark. All right, you can sign up for all of that and so much more at MyFaithRadio.com. Nick Pitts is up next. We'll be right back.
All right, joining me now, Nick Pitts. You can follow him on Twitter at JNickPitts. He's a fellow at the Institute for Global Engagement. Welcome back. Carmen, so great to be with you this morning. Happy Tuesday. Happy Tuesday. Have you ever had puppies? I mean, not you personally, but, you know, you in a household. Uh, you know, I have never had puppies in a household, but the idea that so many puppies in the middle of the night that would <laughs> send you, that just, it, you already knew that you were amazing. And this just was just I, another piece of evidence. That I've learned that so, I've learned so much in the last 12 hours. Okay. So <laughs> we're just going to leave that right there. Um, um, so let's talk about CPAC, and uh, you can take this conversation really wherever you feel led to do so, um, because there are, you know, there's a thousand different threads we could pull here. Um, one headline that I am reading, and again, you know me, Nick, I like to read what other people are saying about people, not just what the people are saying about themselves. So CPAC in its mm-hmm. own self-reporting might be saying a lot. Folks um, who would disagree with the people who gathered at CPAC are saying things like it was a horror show of Christian nationalism. Yeah. Yeah, there was a there was a, a tweet that went viral of an artist that had or a sculptor that had sculpted a um, a, a golden uh, just a golden Donald Trump and was rolling it down the hallway and uh, there was the allusions to the golden calf in Exodus. And so there is a there is very much a sense that there is a, a, a replacement of Israel with the U.S. and the Christian nationalism idea of God blessing the U.S. in turn so that it can bless the world and God's plans and purposes being um, 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 kind of enacted through the U.S. was was definitely apparent there. That is for sure. You know, uh, Carmen, I, the thing that kept on striking out to me, and again, this is this is coming from faithful are the uh, the kisses from a friend, is just the idea that, you know, we really we didn't hear anything. We there was been very little comment about how President Trump, uh, just because it was kind of expected, was being so um, antagonistic and so vocally criticizing the Biden administration, which is just a, a norm that we haven't seen. Before in the U.S., usually there's been a reservation or at least a holding off of criticizing the current president from former presidents. Nancy Dove has done a lot of great work in this with uh, in her book, The President's Club. But it was just it, it was striking to hear less than a month from when uh, he left off as President Trump was just breaking a, a norm that has spanned hundreds and spanned years of being such a vocal critic against the Biden administration, calling him, quote, that he's the worst president in modern history. So the first hundred days. And so just a just an interesting breaking of the norms. Well, I think that's a helpful reminder um, that we have become um, used to certain ways of interacting um, and and certainly we have become um, accustomed to former presidents treating one another in a particular way. Uh, and mm-hmm. maybe not surprising to a lot of people, Donald Trump has broken that norm. Um, and there are probably you know people, Nick, who are saying, well, that's as it should be. The norm needed to be broken. Yeah. Um, and then there are a lot of others who would be saying um, it it's not helpful. It's not particularly helpful for us as we the people um, to to have the person who has just left the office um, be so openly critical so quickly of the person now in the office. So maybe as Christians, you know, that is a consideration today. Like, you know, uh, 
it's one thing to pray for people in authority. It's another thing to actually, you know, work for and hope for their, you know, their success in those areas where we do have common cause. And, you know, there's, it's a, and that's a great point, and, you know, from like from the biblical perspective, we understand that there's a season for everything. And this is maybe the larger point of that, that there used to be a season in which the former president didn't criticize the latter president. But we're living in a world today where, you know, C.S. Lewis has the great line that um, it's always winter and never Christmas. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it, always, it seems like we're entering into a time where it's always campaigning and never governing. Um, that that there there's always been individuals that have uh, followed closely and passionately politics and aligned. We you can go back to the older conventions over the past fifty years, and you just see individuals that are very much impassioned and excited to be cheering on a person. They don't they have on what would be their Make America Great Again hats. They have on the eccentric um, uh, garb uh, as they cheer on their particular candidate. But we're talking about one month after an election that individuals are still <laughs> individuals are still passionately uh, rooting for a candidate that that just lost the election. And, and and then you had individuals that had decided to vote by proxy instead of being there in the people's house at the Capitol and conducting the business of governing the country that choosing instead to attend for all intents and purposes, was a campaign rally for 2022. And, you know, it was just a, it's it's just a, it seems to be a a very sad indictment that we're always campaigning now and there's very little governing that appears to be happening. Individuals that are not doing the, well, they would say that they're doing their job, but not doing their job by being there in person to do the hard work of legislating, which is what we elected them to do. So let's be encouraging um, those whom we have elected to serve us, um, not only in the nation's capital, but in our state capitals and in local government. Let's be of encouragement today to somebody who is serving in public office. So if you're listening right now, I want you to think of one person. Maybe it is a person on your school board. Maybe it's your mayor. Maybe it's a person on your county commission. Um, You know, sort of go down the middle list and then all the way up the chain to the president of the United States and say to yourself, okay, in addition to praying for that individual today, by name, um, for God's grace and mercy and discernment in decision-making and wisdom and collaboration with others and common cause with Christians. Like, in addition to praying all of those things, uh, send them a note of encouragement, like, you know, via email, if you know them personally, maybe via a text message, just reach out and um, let folks know that you're you're actively praying for them. Um, yeah, and that would be of great encouragement today. All right. Hey, Nick. Oh, go ahead. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, I'll I just continue to echo. I, at the very end of the day, what happens in federal office does have implications and ramifications on your everyday life. But I would I would beg to say what's happening in, in city council meetings, what's happening among your state legislators has far greater impact on your everyday life and the propensity to bless your life as well as to make it uh, to make it move toward the welfare, the good, good welfare of the city. Absolutely. All right. When Nick and I come back from a very brief break, we are going to take up a headline that, um, frankly, I did not expect to see. Bethany Christian Services is now provide the, the language is providing, which is kind of icky language to me. Um, it is now uh, it is no longer barring gay couples from adopting through Bethany Christian uh, Services. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen.
Right. All right. To get us into this conversation about this major change at Bethany Christian Services, I'm actually just going to read a, a couple of the opening headlines in the New York Times today. The New York Times headline, major evangelical adoption agency will now serve gay parents nationwide. The decision comes as more cities and states require organizations to accept applications from LGBTQ couples or risk losing government contracts. Here's the lead of the story. Um, Again, I'm reading Ruth Graham's piece in the New York Times. One of the country's largest adoption and foster care agencies, Bethany Christian Services, announced on Monday it would begin providing services to LGBTQ parents nationwide, effective immediately, a major inflection point in the fraught battle over many faith-based agencies' longstanding opposition to working with same-sex couples. Wow. I don't know about you, Nick, but um, uh, this came I, I, th- at some level, this came as a surprise. And I guess at some at another level, it's no surprise at all. Yeah, I, I think one, we can look at the research of what it what because at the end of the day, this has to deal with children. And so what's the research when it comes to raising uh, being raised in a household of a same sex family? And then the second piece is, like you said, this is this is surprising in that we we didn't anticipate it, and Bethany's just been such a, a great Christian institution that has uh, it apparently has facilitated upwards of 3,400 foster placements and uh, approximately 1,100 adoptions in 2019. And so, but we realize that there are shifting views among evangelicals when it comes to same-sex marriage. And so, consider this: the the share of white evangelical Protestants who support same-sex marriage is growing from 11% in 2004 to over 15 years later, 29% today. So it's more than double. Um, found that 66% of people who attend church once or twice a month support same-sex marriage. And so there has been appearing to be a, a transition that's happening or, um, relative to same-sex marriage and in turn the benefits therein. But, you know, there's, there's research on, on both sides. And so some would say that, uh, that this could be a good thing. You know, research, I found a research paper out of Europe that found that children of same-sex couples perform better in schools by about 7%. They're more likely to graduate from high school than children raised by different sex couples. But, um, and this is a big but, uh, according to Mark uh, Regeneres, who's down here in Texas at the University of Texas, children in same-sex homes are markedly more likely, according to his research, to report lower levels of happiness, suffer from depression, and be unfaithful in their own relationships. They're also more likely to have a a sexually transmitted infection, be unemployed as young young adults, and get arrested. And so there seems to be significant downsides, not only from a um, wanting to display what uh, Christ and his church is from the biblical narrative in Ephesians 5, but also the idea of training up a child and blessing a child in the way they should go when children are placed in the same sex homes. Um, so the way you just um, examined the question and were willing to look at research that would be, you know, really on both sides of, of the mm-hmm. conversation. You know, the data that you are reading and the markers that you're tracking, um, those influence the answer to the question, what is best for kids? Or what does mm-hmm. the science tell us? Or what does the data say? And so I just want to remind our listeners um, that if you're only reading one inflammatory headline or one 
person's viewpoint on any given subject, you are getting that one person's viewpoint and the data they're choosing to share. So, Nick, I appreciate that you were willing to bring data that, um, you know, would support the answer to the question. Yeah, this is best for kids to be, you know, to be placed in um, in households led by same sex couples. I think that um, some of the things that are particularly troubling to me are how quickly this took place and, you know, any time that the word evangelical and major evangelical, you know, anything like, right, when that's a headline in the New York Times, there's an influence there in the larger culture in terms of the movement among evangelicals to toward embracing, um, let's say, the the LGBTQ um, approach to things. Um, that's going to suggest, I think that when the word evangelical appears in a headline like this, that is going to suggest to the wider culture that the church has been moved on this subject. And I don't think that's, yeah. that's a fair assessment. No, no. So two things. Um, one is just the reality for us to see that, well, like you mentioned in the beginning of your answer, like I, I don't want to hide away from the best arguments on the other side. At the end of the day, what John Milton said, let truth and falsehood wrestle in a field, for I've never known truth to be put asunder. Um, mm. uh, we follow the God of truth, and so we can we can see the best arguments from the other side because we need to be prepared to be able to give a response when we hear that argument. And so that's why we want to highlight what's the best argument for this. And so the best argument appears in my case, and there could be others, is that there's shifting moods among evangelicals relative to same-sex marriage, and two, it makes it appears to make kids. Um, more likely to graduate high school, and three, being in a same-sex home is better than being in a foster parent home. Well, from the evangelical perspective, what we would say is there's clear research that indicates, uh, I'll just say from a biblical perspective, there's clear research that indicates that being in a, a traditional home of a mother and father has far greater benefits than being in a same-sex home. And, and then two, I'm not listening to the culture, I'm following the Creator. Um, and I'm just I'm just the messenger. He's given me his word. I'm not I'm not trying to follow after the shifting winds of the culture, but rather I'm trying to follow what my God has told me because he's told me that the flower withers and the beauty of uh, and the grass fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And I know it might not be unpopular, but this is what the word of God has led me to believe, and I'm following that and not what Pew says about uh, evangel- white evangelicals here in the U.S. Yeah, that's really helpful. Um, Nick, I, I'm guessing that there's going to be some blowback. Um, mm-hmm. It will be interesting to see, um, you know, how I, I'm assuming that since they chose to roll this out in this particular way, um, they they have already considered what the blowback might be, and they have already determined that they are ready and willing to withstand it. Um, my guess is there are going to be some evangelicals and some congregations who withdraw their support from Bethany Christian Services mm-hmm. after this announcement. Um, and so I just, you know, let's be praying for them today. Uh, you know, as we have noted, they have facilitated more than 3,400 foster placements um, just in one year across 32 states. Um, more than 1,100 adoptions in that same year. Like this is a this is a very robust and active ministry, and um, you know, an adoption is a, a a potent witness in the culture. Oh my goodness! Uh, yes, when Christians yes. engage in it, yeah, yeah. And, and one of the beautiful things we can just recognize is two things really. 
is one, the reality of the matter is that, you know, my, our mandate still doesn't change. You know, regardless of what people's views are, our, our call is to love them and to be known by our love. And so Jesus uh, modeled this greatly for us that he didn't, his love wasn't limited to those who only agreed with him. His love was expansive and generous enough. And so we can, we can disagree with individuals, but it doesn't change that we're supposed to love them. And then two, recognize that there are great organizations, one top of mind here located in Dallas, but has a nationwide footprint. Buckner Family Services is a phenomenal organization led by a phenomenal man, Albert Reyes, um, that is just doing really great work for the kingdom in the space of that beautiful gospel picture that is adoption and really doing great work to show as a vivid example of individuals choosing those that and making them a part of their family. Yeah, and let's um, let's just also highlight for those of you that have been listening here to the program for a while, you will recognize the name uh, Maridel Sanders and the organization Together for Good, which is creating pathways right there in the Twin Cities. Um, for those of you who live in the in the greater Minneapolis and St. Paul region, um, Together for Good, it would be a ministry that you would want to check out, tfggood.org. Um, hey, Nick, thank you so much for joining us today, bringing the light to bear on these headlines. We'll talk again soon. Can't wait. Thanks so much, Carmen. Blessings, brother. We'll be right back. The perfect puppy to always be right by my side. Perfect puppy to find those toys that try to hide. Okay, it's possible that for the next, I don't know, eight weeks, that might just need to be our, our go-to song, Paul. You think so? Like, well, I have to keep them right for like yeah. eight weeks before they can go live with someone else. True so, enough. for those of you who missed the open, at the, uh, I now have seven puppies at my house. They came last night under the cover of darkness. Um, born to Anne, she's a first-time puppy mom, and um, she is an Aust- mini Australian Red healer, and so are her babies, and so they are all white. And so, for those of you, by the way, I'm loving uh, those of you texting in all of your puppy experiences, puppy advice, puppy counsel, all welcome this morning. Uh, at 877-933-2484. I can take all I can get. This is my first time experience. Um, you know, yeah. Mm-hmm. Housing puppies. So there you go. And I, I recognize I have to keep them for eight weeks, but then they're going to need homes. So you have counsel on that. Uh, yeah, they can't all stay with us. We are rich in dogs, but 10 is too many. Okay, um, up next, Luke Moon from the Philos Project. We are going to talk about a range of international headlines. We're about to get deadly serious here on Mornings with Carmen. When your team dishes out disrespect or blatantly disobeys your rules, there's conflict headed your way. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. When we're in the middle of a standoff with a teen and the emotions are raging, it's hard to keep your cool. Yet, despite the turmoil, conflict can actually strengthen your relationship if you handle it right. Here are some rules to keep in mind for having a good, healthy fight. First, Focus on the big picture. This argument can serve a greater purpose. Second, try to learn something about yourself instead of just lecturing your kid. And third, keep the conversation two-way. Don't insist on having the last word. Plan in advance to have healthy arguments, and you'll be surprised how everyone wins. Find more help from parenting expert Mark Gregston online at parentingtodaysteens.org. Wise men will bow down before the throne, and at his feet 
they'll cast their golden crowns when the man comes around. Joining me now, Luke Moon from the Philos Project. Um, Luke, welcome back. Good morning, Carmen. Good morning. Good morning. Um, we're going to start off with some, well, actually, all the news that you and I are covering today is serious. Um, let's lead off with the United Nations Human Rights Commission and the information related to um, Chinese dissidents and um, and the government in China. Yeah, it seems. Well, so the UN Human Rights Commission, uh, which is you know one of the one of the tentacles of the you know United Nations infrastructure, uh, has been basically caught passing uh, names of dissidents uh, who are expected to speak critically against China uh, there at the UN Commission and passing those names on to China before uh, they were allowed to speak. And therefore, you know, they could be intimidated. Uh, they were blocked from entering uh, the, the UN uh, grounds there in Geneva. Uh, some were even, you know, had family members that were pressured there you know, security agents would come to their homes. It was, it's, it's a very, um, you know, it's, it's quite terrible, quite damning, actually, on the UN Human Rights Commission, which doesn't need much help to get damning news out of them. I mean, they seem to, you know, they make, uh, you know, Venezuela, the, the, the chair, the, the chair country of the Human Rights Commission, it tells you what you need to know about that place. Yeah, that part I think is is maybe part of the most disturbing portion of this. You would one would expect uh, the United Nations Human Rights Commission to be comprised of countries that were not human right obvious human rights violators. That's not the case, and you would expect the United Nations Human Rights Commission to be interested in the preservation of and protection of people under threat by their own governments. And that is exactly the opposite of what we're seeing demonstrated here. So we wanted to highlight it with you. Um, I suspect this is a topic that we might circle back around to from time to time. Um, Let's talk uh, about what's going on with Iran. There are actually several headlines related to Iran this week. Why don't you bring us up to speed? Yeah. So, you know, we've talked about how Iran was going to uh, test the Biden administration. Well, you know, last week or over a week ago, they they did test uh, the the Biden administration w- by uh, attacking a, a facility in Iraq with with Shia militias, and uh, the response was the U.S. then bombed uh, just the other day a weapons depot of of this same uh, Syria dissident or it's not uh, the the uh, militia group. Uh, so that that was, you know, a, a good response. I think uh, the other factors coming into play, though, are we're still messing around with trying to get back into the uh, nuclear deal that we made, that the Obama administration made, and then the uh, Trump administration backed out of. And it turns out that Iran's like, yeah, we, we're not that interested in coming back to this. I think if we mm-hmm. remember a couple months ago that that there was news that, you know, by mid-March, uh, Iran would have enough uh, enriched uranium for a bomb. And it does seem that they're stalling uh, to get back to negotiations on this and, and using time as their leverage, because there's really no, 
there isn't a lot of pain points. The U.S. did uh, release. Uh, there was a, a, a Korean bank that had uh, that had restricted funds uh, as part of uh, sanctions uh, to Iran. And the U.S. Uh, Biden administration allowed those funds to go back to Iran uh, and, you know, injected a several billion dollars back into the coffers. And the problem is when you inject money back into Iran, it suddenly appears in Hezbollah, it appears in Hamas, and it appears among the Houthis in in Yemen, which, you know, is they promptly use that money to uh, launch some rockets at Saudi Arabia, right? So it, everything that we're doing here with, with Iran is is really going to, I think, uh, further destabilize the region. And it's it's really, uh, I think, poor uh, statecraft. But that's just me. Well, no, that's why we bring you on, because we appreciate your perspective. Let me just remind everybody, um, Luke is the de- deputy director of the Philos Project. You can find them at philosproject.org. He also tweets at Luke Moon one um, you mentioned there Saudi Arabia, um, and so I want to talk about the intelligence report on the murder of journalist um, Jamal Khashoggi and the uh, maybe the lack of response, the lack of robust response to um, the findings of that report in terms of uh, how the U.S. government is responding. So just to remind everybody of who Jamal Khashoggi was – um, and then and then tell us uh, a little bit about what was disclosed in the report. Yeah, uh, Jamal Khashoggi was a Washington Post uh, journalist. He was also uh, a resident in the United States, uh, and he was uh, going to Saudi Arabia embassy in Turkey to get a visa to because he was getting married. Uh, he was, uh, according to the report, he was. Uh, killed by the security service and then uh, dismembered so that he could be brought out of the Saudi uh, embassy in in pieces. It's uh, very disturbing for the morning, but that's what they did. And and the the news is that the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salam uh, Sol- Salman was the guy behind behind it. He he ordered it. He allowed it to 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 happen. Uh, all the fingers are pointing at him, and yet he is also the same guy that initiated the Abraham Accords. He's opened, uh, you know, the, the Saudi Arabia for women can get driver's license and drive and go to movie theaters, right? So you have a very complicated situation where this guy is simultaneously the murder of a journalist, but also he is uh, opening uh, Saudi Arabia up to the modern world in ways that his predecessors had not. And I think it puts the Biden administration in a difficult position because they don't quite, you know, they, they don't want to go so strongly after this, after the leader of a very, you know, strong U.S. ally. At the same time, there's pressure for him to do something, right? And and the reality is that the administration at this point has chosen to, to not, exert the kind of pressure it could. The other factor here is, you know, there is this axis. And every time we talk about the Middle East, you got to kind of frame it in what's the big meta story going on. And it's there is that, you know, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Shia Sunni split. But the other major factor in the region is the Muslim Brotherhood. 
right? And which is a Islamist um, organization, a very devout religious one. And, and they have kind of visions for how the Middle East should look. And uh, Jamal Khashoggi was the, uh, was a pretty serious spokesperson for the Muslim for the Muslim Brotherhood uh, in the United States and elsewhere, and so he was very much kind of uh, a major player in the regional politics, and one that the Saudis were like, "This guy's got to go." Uh, and unfortunately, you know, it, uh, they killed uh, Jamal Khashoggi, and unfortunately, it, all the fingers point at MBS. And uh, MBS, unfortunately, has also done some really good things in the region. And so it, it creates a really difficult uh, dilemma for the Biden administration on how they respond to this. So that is a really helpful um, summary. Thank you so much for that. Uh, I think it is a great reminder of just how complex global relationships are um, and how many threads there are to examine when we think we have, you know, the picture in our mind, um, you know, that's just often not the whole picture. It's often just one very small piece of the picture. And sometimes we're even just looking at the completely wrong side of the tapestry. So uh, I think that was a a particularly helpful way of framing it. Uh, So thank you for that, Luke. We got to take a very brief break. When we come back, I'm going to ask Luke Moon um, about the Pope planned visit to Iraq. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right. So there are a lot, uh, a lot of people who are concerned about the proposed trip of the planned trip now uh, of the Pope to uh, the nation of Iraq. Here here was the surprise feature in this to me. I mean, it's not surprising to me that people have concerns. Um, there's a sharp rise in coronavirus infections in Iraq. They have a very fragile health care system. Here's the part of the lead sentence by the Associated Press um, that I think should be of surprise to people if they're paying attention. The unavoidable likelihood that Iraqis will crowd to see him. So let's talk about Christianity in Iraq, because that's really the storyline. Yeah, no, it's the, the, you know, it's the the church in Iraq is much smaller than it was. Mind you, you know, in 2003, there was 1.5 million Christians in Iraq. Today, they're down to between three and four hundred thousand, which is which is just a real tragedy, Carmen. I mean, like, honestly, there are more. Iraqi Christians in the Chicago area than are left mm. in Iraq, right? Mm-hmm. But you know, it's they're still a sizable population. The huge, particularly in the north uh, around uh, Mosul, which used to be Nineveh, uh, ha, you know, has a has a very large uh, Christian population up there. Uh, it's it's quite a, a really a remarkable uh, thing that the Pope is doing to visit this country. And and really affirm the believers who are very beleaguered in in that region. You know, the the big story though is the fact that you know here it is COVID season, and you know, you know people could get COVID, uh, and which is which is you know obviously terrible, and that would you know be 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 really wrong. But nonetheless, I mean, people in that region are dying from really a lack of spiritual care 
at a far mm-hmm. faster than they would have COVID. Uh, and, and you know, the, the region has just been really decimated. The church has been decimated. There's so many churches have been destroyed. I mean, I walked, you know, in, in about three or four years ago, walked through churches in, in Iraq that were just, you know, completely burned out. You know, the, the, the statues were, were decapitated. The, everything was ransacked. It was, it was really, it's really a tragic example of what's happening in, in that region. And, and, you know, it, hopefully the Pope's visit will shine some light on the, the challenges facing the Christians in, in Iraq, in the Middle East broadly, and, you know, hopefully give some attention to Christian persecution, which has not ended uh, just because it's not in the news. So uh, you guys might want to read what Mindy Bells has to say about what is happening um, in Iraq in the lead up among Christians in the lead up to the Pope's visit. Um, actually, the Vatican has a really interesting piece posted. Uh, it's called Iraq, an overview of the church and the country's Christian Christian communities um, in the lead up to the March 5 to 8 visit by the Pope. Um, and when you're reading the more secular headlines related to this, uh, if you're listening today, I want you to think about lines like this. No one wants to tell Pope Francis to call it off. Like, I'm just not sure that in earlier generations, anyone would have even had the chutzpah to suggest that someone might be in a position to tell a pope to do much of anything. So it's a, it's an interesting story. The secular media is covering it in a very robust way. Um, you can expect them to do so, particularly now that we have a Catholic president. Um, and so this is a storyline you're going to want to watch over the coming days and one that I think Christians should be prepared to interact with um, and comment on, particularly on behalf of our persecuted brothers and sisters, not only in Iraq, but throughout the Nineveh Plain in the Middle East. All right, let's talk about the John 15 challenge you guys have going on at the Philos Project. You guys can check it out at philosproject.org. What's the John 15 challenge, Luke? So the John 15 challenge came about when, at, you know, right after the uh, election and and the stuff around January 6th, like a, a friend of mine called me up and was like, Luke, like the church is just, we are so divided. We are just on a complete opposite sides and and in so many ways and you know from that we we decided to to launch this campaign that we're calling the john 15 challenge i mean it really is you know the commandment of of jesus in john 15 is this is my command that you love one another as i have loved you and then jesus says uh if you will be my friend if you follow my command, which he just said what his command was, right? So, like, I want to be Jesus's friend, and that means I got to, uh, you know, love other people. And I, I don't know about you, Carmen, but over the last several years, I've there's been a lot of people that unfriended me. Um, maybe it's I'm a little too snarky on Facebook and Twitter, but nonetheless, you know, it's like we're we're very far apart, and you know, it's it's our it's our goal to try and get people to remember those people that they have fallen out of friendship with out of fellowship with because of politics or because of you know issues of the moment right and and to pray during this uh lenten and easter season for those people specifically uh and then perhaps if if you know you're you have you really want to take it to the next level you 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 find them and you 
grab coffee with them. Maybe you go in and and serve at a soup kitchen with them or or, or you know, go do a, a, you know, a park cleanup with them. This is a way of saying, no, we're going to we're not going to let uh, politics divide us. I mean, one of the things that was interesting to me, Carmen, is that is that. You know, Jesus' disciples included a guy named Matthew, who was a tax collector, and a guy named Simon, who was a zealot. And in the first century, those two parties were at, uh, groups of people were at opposite ends on the Roman occupation. I mean, the zealots were like, you know, stabbing Roman soldiers in the back with little knives. And, uh, you know, si- uh, Matthew, the tax collector, he was taking taxes for him, right? So if Jesus could call those two guys, as his disciples, like, I think, I think we can, you know, maybe us as disciples of Christ can, can, uh, you know, not let our, our voting pattern determine our relationships. Yeah. So this is a message to all the tax collectors and zealots listening right now, or those on the, <laughs> uh, on the political extremes today in Jesus. Um, if Jesus is calling you to be his disciple, then he is calling you into relationship with one another as well. The John 15 challenge is an opportunity to engage in that conversation. You can check it out at philosproject.org. Luke, as always, thanks so much. It's my pleasure. Thanks, Carmen. We'll, We'll do it again. We'll be right back. Hey, one more thing for you to check out. Um, many of you have uh, have asked about and encouraged us to be obviously praying about the lead up to the trial of police officers charged in George Floyd's murder that begins um, on uh, begins uh, next Monday. Um, and so I just want you to invite you to check out an effort in the Minneapolis St. Paul area that's also a global effort. It's called We Are Gospel World. We Are Gospel World. If you want to. Um, engage in a very public and positive way um, in the lead up to that as believers. All right. As, as all the world turns its attention again to Minneapolis. We got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.